Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And David Canfield. Hi. We have lots of news to talk about. Again, it's very exciting. We have a whole film festival kicking off. We have new movies in theaters and old movies back in theaters uh, ahead of the new versions of those movies. It's real, real grab bag. Um, but I want to start with the biggest news from last week that, of course, broke after we recorded our conversation about the Fablemans winning the Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival, which is that Michelle Williams will be campaigning as Best Actress instead of Best Supporting Actress, which... If you heard us uh, say that uh, boldly, we tried to cut it out of the conversation last week, but it might have lingered because we all thought she was just going to win Best Supporting Actress. Um, I kind of wrote about it and got myself in a lather about how maybe this is a great move, uh, having not seen the movie yet. Um, But uh, David and Richard, you have seen the movie. Uh, What do you think? Is this a good strategy at all? Well, to respond to your piece, Katie, how could she be lead? She's playing a mom. I know. Moms (laughs) exist only to support their children. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Actually, this mom doesn't. She does support a lot in the movie, but she also does her own thing. (laughs) Yeah, she also does her own thing. Um, Yeah, I really liked your piece about it. It did make me think about it in maybe like less cynical and more substantive terms, you know? which I think sometimes I, I lose sight of when we talk about this stuff. Um, yeah. She could be lead of the movie. She could be a supporting. I don't know. It's a great performance. My only kind of head shake about it is like, gee, she really would have won in supporting. And yep. if that was kind of the goal, then I think that she's setting herself up for a much tougher fight um, when she's like going to be what, giving birth to a child, right? She's, she's. I mean, you know. Like she's, any minute now, I think. Yeah. So like, I don't know how much she's going to want to care about that fight, but um we have wrestled with category fraud many, many instances uh, in the reverse direction. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see. It's not fraud, I don't think, for her to be in lead, but just to see the momentum going that way, because it rarely does. It's not, yeah, it's not fraud. And I completely agree with Richard. I loved your piece, Katie. And I loved the fact that you maybe reframed the conversation a little bit. Because, Ooh, wow, what credit you're giving me. <laughs> no, but it's true, because I think when these things start to build... It becomes an incredibly cynical, (laughs) narrowly focused discussion on campaigns and strategies and chances of winning when these are, you know, there are more things going on than just that. Uh, Michelle Williams has been nominated in both Lean and Supporting many times. She has given some of the best uh, awards season speeches of her era, winning you know, Emmys and precursors at the Globes and things like that. And if there's one thing we know about her, it's that... She thinks about these things and these roles and the way they're positioned and talked about uh, in more nuanced ways than most. And to me, this feels an absolute part of that. And I think it should be talked about in that context because it's clear as day <laughs> that she has, you know, has a tougher road than she did a week ago. That's, that's a fact. She was probably going to win that Oscar near certainly. You could compare it maybe to Viola Davis and Fences, who did not run lead but could have, um, but who had that supporting Oscar on lock. 
I think this is a similar situation, but she is running in lead um, and she's running in a really exciting lead actress category this year, um, which could actually she could very well be competitive in for a win. I'm not I'm not saying she's not, but. Yeah, I mean, there have been years like when Reese Witherspoon won for Walk the Line and Best Actress where there just weren't a ton of like huge commanding central female performances. But this year it's Kate Blanchett and Tar and then also Michelle Yeoh and everything everywhere all at once. Like those are the absolute center of their movies in a way that it seems that she is not quite. Yep. It's so I think it's so tricky with these child led movies like we saw this with Belfast last year. I was so sure Katrina Belf had a supporting actress nomination locked up, but I, I, I did sort of think it was a mistake. She didn't go as lead. I think it's confusing for mm-hmm. voters because they sort of forget that the kid is the lead in the movie um, because obviously children are not a part of this conversation most of the time. So I agree. It's a bold move, but I, I do think it's the right one this time. Although with Fablemans, you have Gabriel LaBelle, who's 19, I think, um, who is playing the kid most of the time. So I That's guess still a, a child, different. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I got when I was writing the piece last week about Michelle Williams that really kind of felt like I understood her thinking was thinking about all the money in the world, which actually leads us into our next breaking news hmm. topic. But the pay disparity that happened around that and how she kind of wound up speaking up publicly about it, um, kind of in the thick of Me Too and like this huge, you know, reckoning of women's roles within movies. Um, And I can imagine her going through that and saying, like, I'm not going to just take a backseat because it's the easy route. Um, And whether or not it's a wise move awards wise is very debatable. But it, it made me kind of admire what seems like is her thinking, at least from what I can tell. And how cool to have a supporting race that's like such a an unpredictable mess right now. Yeah. It's way more exciting. We want to lay out the the player. I mean, it's like the women talking and then question mark, question mark, question mark. How many women talking is now, I think, (laughs) the top question. (laughs) It opens the door potentially for Dolly Delion from uh, Triangle Mm -hmm. of Sadness. I don't know, maybe even Sigourney Weaver in the Paul Schrader movie, if it can get (laughs) distribution by then. The one category that seems sewn up um, has now been completely cast into into who knows what. So, um, yeah, I agree with Rebecca that it's it's fun. Um, we don't want to get sick of talking about this stuff yet, you know. And if there's a sure thing this early, uh, we it can get a little dull. So thank you, Michelle, for taking a principled stand and also helping our conversation. Yeah. I got excited when um, Nathaniel Rogers at the Film Experience wrote about supporting actress and led with a photo of Jamie Lee Curtis and everything everywhere all at once, who I think, you know, has been for some reason, for some righteous regions overshadowed by Michelle Yeoh, but she's so good in that movie and has been in the industry for so long. Like that would be a fun campaign that got to bubble up now that this has all happened. I also think Stephanie Sue is so good in that movie and obviously not as well known, but she really has to carry a pretty tough role in there. So I hope they're both definitely in the conversation now. Put them both in. Why not? Just go for it. All right. Well, I mentioned all the money in the world, um, which brings us to the um, the full-blown rumor at this point as we record, although who knows, by the time this comes out, it may be confirmed. Um, but uh, there was reporting in the Ankler that Apple is considering bringing Napoleon out this year, the Ridley Scott movie about Napoleon. Um, And it filmed earlier this year, I believe. Um, But as we know from All the Money in the World and House of Gucci also, I think, uh, Ridley Scott likes to move quickly. Um, So it seems plausible. Um, And David, you and I were talking about it, um, kind of the way that Apple... um, is fresh off a Best Picture win, but maybe doesn't have a guaranteed Best Picture winner in their lineup this year. So does that make you <laughs> believe this is true? <laughs> <laughs> well, no one thought Coda was a guaranteed Best Picture winner either. So That's very true. Um, but 
Rebecca can also speak to the fact that we heard a lot about Cha-Cha Real Smooth a couple months ago as they were gearing up their campaign, and that has quieted down. I think that they were hoping that could be a Coda-esque breakthrough. Um, the Greatest Beer in Ever, I think they were hoping to be a Peter Fairley-esque, you know, Green Book surprise hit at Toronto. That did not happen. It's actually in theaters right now. You may not know that. Wow, I did not yes. know that. Yes, uh, and it <laughs> didn't cause much of a stir. Let's say um, not enough people watching it to get angry about it, unlike with Green Book. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, the Jennifer Lawrence vehicle Causeway, which I saw in Toronto, um, it's a very muted, small movie that really is not going to go anywhere. So they are kind of starting from scratch. And from my vantage point, they are throwing every title they have against the wall in this bizarre stream of leaks to see what sticks. You know, the New York Times had a report that they were close to putting emancipation on the 2022 calendar, despite Will Smith being in the lead. Um, we've heard for a while now that is a movie they're extremely high on. It's hard to know how much of that is trying to overcome the obvious barrier of releasing that movie um, and how much of that is genuine, you know, excitement, encouragement at what they've seen. Um, and then they had the Ridley Scott one. I had a source uh, close to Apple tell me immediately after that Enkler report that it's not 2022. Uh, and other outlets had that very quick pickup as well, which leads you to wonder <laughs> who is, you know, leaking this in the first place and why is the backtracking happening so swiftly? Uh, because this has happened with Emancipation as well. And then lurking in the corner here is Killers of the Flower Moon, which of these three big movies is the one that we all assumed would be 2022 um, because it shot a good while ago and it has so much going for it. The book is phenomenal. It's Martin Scorsese uh, and DiCaprio, et cetera, et cetera. And there's just been no news on that one. So that one is the one I'm half expecting to just get a date placement in a week now or by the time this episode is up because they have been so all over the place. So I can't tell if they're just trying to create some chaos or actually lining up their players to see who they can position. Because it's also getting pretty late to plan a campaign, let alone have something out in a couple months. It does seem like they should release one of those this year, because that's a lot to do next year to handle <laughs> all three of those giant uh, promising movies in one season. But Very true. I do think Apple, I think ran a smart campaign with Coda, but also sort of lucked into that being as successful as it was because it is a phenomenal film that had a really powerful message and performances. And so I think maybe they're still figuring out how you strategically push a film uphill that wasn't already, you know, so successful on its own. Um, because I think we all remember we didn't, Coda kind of succeeded at Sundance and then kind of went away and none of us thought it was going to be a thing and then it came back. So this is a different trajectory, so maybe they just are still figuring it out. Well, and with Coda, they also had a prison frontrunner in Power the Dog that was kind of intellectual, and you could feel the people being alienated from it, even as it was succeeding so much. And I must, I assume that everyone is doing this by saying, okay, the Fablemans, like, that's what we got. We only have Spielberg to knock off. We can do that. But Fablemans doesn't seem like that kind of frontrunner. That's like, that strategy has to be really different. Yeah. It's a people's choice winner, which is yeah. a different kind of movie to overtake. My only contribution to this is that I have some friends who are dedicated Regal Cinemas, uh, like membership card holders. And oh, the mystery screening. They did a mystery screening <laughs> and they were like, oh, it's R-rated. It's coming out this week. It's got to be bros. And then he he, he texted me. Uh, we were sure it was bros. And then the Apple logo came up and we were like, what? 
and then it was the greatest <laughs> beer run ever. We, sh- we screamed, got up, and left. <laughs> <laughs> not even enough attention for Zac Efron? I we are not watching this. Yeah. Um, and apparently on Twitter, there were other people who were like, what the fuck? Like, why would Yes, <laughs> there was horror. We did, we did not want to watch this movie. Um, so, oops uh, to that one, I guess. But um, I just think that's a really funny movie to, to like sneak attack people with. <laughs> I do like Ridley Scott emerging at this point in his career as this, like, consistent wild card. Like, he had two movies out last year, which is Bananas, the All the Money in the World thing we mentioned before, like, goes and gets Christopher Plummer an Oscar nomination. Like, you just never know. Um, And I don't know if we're supposed to place all of our chips on Napoleon, like, even if they do rush it out here. Like, it could truly go either way. But I enjoy the surprise element of it. I gotta be honest. Same. And look, Joaquin Phoenix crashing that best actor race would be very well timed because That's it's true. not particularly deep right now. I did see someone on Twitter say, and I, I agree, but it also made me laugh that they were like, I don't think the thing that Ridley Scott needs is less editing time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I saw that too. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, that's 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 true. I mean, not that he's like turns out messy films. He, he, you know, he's very productive. But like, I don't know, something as big as that. Like, I want, I would want him to really like make sure it's where he wants it to be. Yeah. Well, we can turn to something a little bit more concrete, which is that the international feature race is solidifying in at least that we know uh, which films the countries are submitting. Uh, It is kind of consistently weird that the governments of these countries get to decide which movies they submit. Um, But, David, you've been kind of keeping tabs on that for us. Um, And there was really interesting news on that front today as we record this, which is that Russia is essentially boycotting. Um, And I think it's an open question about how well a Russian Russian film would fare anyway. Um, But uh, beyond that, what's interesting here? Uh, yeah, the Russian news was obviously very interesting, and um, we will we will see how that develops. They've had many great contenders over the years, um, but this year, you know, what I've seen a lot screen in Toronto. I thought Decision to Leave was really wonderful, um, which I know uh, Rebecca and Richard saw back in Cannes, and that seemed to have really good momentum. That's the Park Chan Wook um, noir inspired kind of mystery thriller drama. It's the South Korean submission. It seems very likely to at least make the shortlist. One of the few, I think, because it's a kind of, it's a scattered field this year um, in a good way. And he feels like the kind of filmmaker who could get a run in director, as we've seen with past international auteurs over the past few years. And it's it seems safe to say that at this point we should probably be reserving one spot in the director's branch for yeah. one such person because they have done that so consistently of late and it's only getting more global. So that's something to think about with these films as well. Um, Corsage is a film that, you know, I was pretty blown away by Vicky Creep's performance in it. That is the Austrian submission. Um, and there's a really great campaign that I've seen is working on it. There's a really fun poster out there for that folks who haven't really seen good. it. Yeah. Um, and Vicky is um, a really great spokesperson for anything. So I think her getting out there for the film can only help it. Um, and one probably really close to my favorite film of the year uh, is Saint-Omer, uh, which is the new French selection. And it was a pretty competitive year for France. Um, but it is a pretty hauntingly powerful courtroom drama-esque um, take on an infanticide case from a few years ago in France that just kind of, is hard to shake. And it has two really extraordinary performances, and it's Alice Diop's narrative feature debut, but it does not feel like a debut in any way. It has incredible confidence and patience and, um, I think, skill in the way it hits you uh, at the end. And um, I think it's a really strong contender. What I love about the uh, international film race is that 
there's always these little stories behind the scenes that are full of drama, but obviously to a lot of people who maybe aren't paying attention to this race as closely, you sort of miss them. Um, I was reading about how the Hong Kong submission, Where the Wind Blows, is sort of a controversial choice. It had been supposed to open at the Hong Kong Film Festival, but it was canceled like right before for technical reasons, which is sort of a, a euphemism that is used um, in mainland China for censorship. So it's, you know, it's about corruption, which a lot of those films in mainland China don't, um, aren't allowed. So I think seeing those little stories, you know, about how these choices are made are, are so fascinating to me. Yeah, the the big one this year was India not selecting RRR for mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. their their choice, and there was a lot of you know if you know the way India tends to select their films and the way that that process goes, it, it was an unconventional kind of choice for them. And indeed, they went with uh, Last Film Show, which is a <laughs> movie that fits right in the category of Armageddon Time and the Fablemans uh, as a kind of director movie memoir. Uh, that they hope the Academy will go for. But, it, you know, for fans of RRR, which there are many in India and many around the world, including here in the U.S., uh, it was it was disappointing news because it is much harder for uh, a film that is not in the English language to get a real Oscar campaign without that kind of official country backing. You know, you can be Pedro Moldovar and nab your movie a few nominations for Parallel Mother, say, without that. But other than that, it is it is quite difficult and Netflix has indicated they're really going to keep pushing it, um, but it's going to be a difficult road for that movie now. Netflix also has Germany's submission, which is All Quiet on the Western Front, and then probably Mexico's submission. I don't think it's official yet with Bardo. And I guess it's an open question of how much their um, power can kind of move the needle in this category, which is so idiosyncratic every single year. Blonde is also Jupiter's submission. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> And we saw with Amazon getting behind Oscar Farati for the first time with The Hero, which was mm. very well received. And he'd never had that kind of big streamer backing before. Um, didn't really matter. It wasn't nominated. Uh, it was a competitive year, but still, I think it was pretty notable that it didn't make that five um, or a screenplay or anything like that. And so, yeah, how much does Netflix matter in this equation? I I think that they do, uh, especially something like All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a remake, obviously, based on the title. And it it is a movie that played very well in Toronto. It's a a two-and-a-half, two-three-hour, I think, in that window, uh, harrowing war movie. So you're going to have to get people to watch it. Um, But it it was very well received. I I didn't personally have time to see it, but um, I was more excited for it than I was before the reactions came out. Uh, yeah, and other ones to look forward to are EO from Poland, a uh, film about a donkey that everyone loved at Cannes. Um, I would say maybe Hit the Road from Iran. Um, although, was that mm. maybe technically last year? I, I don't know. I, I can't. It's hard to track these things because oftentimes the um, the international feature movies don't come out till like spring of the next year. They just do a quick qualifying. Um, but, you know, France making that pick, which I have not yet seen St. Omar, and I, I hear it's wonderful. But I was a little sad for Mia Hansen-Love, who had Me One too. Fine Morning, which um, or has One Fine Morning. Um, it's going to be at New York Film Festival. Uh, it's lovely. It's maybe a little too quiet and small to register, but she's a she's a great one of their great filmmakers. And um, I think maybe sometimes gets a little overlooked. But in this case, it sounds like it was justified because St. Omar is like a really like event of a movie. 
that's that's a perfect example of a movie that I would hope has some kind of life beyond France not selecting it, uh, even though it won't. And you can read a profile of Mia Hansen Love on Vanity Fair right now mm. uh, in lead up to that um, that New York premiere. Uh, and the one other movie I would mention that probably right now is the best chance at really breaking through is Close, which is Belgium's selection. It is um, it, it's a hard movie to discuss without spoiling, but it's a, an extremely affecting movie. I was pretty mixed on it. Um, I think a lot of critics will be. But it, I saw it in Telluride, and truly every person in my row was in tears by the end. And I know A24 has really big aspirations for it uh, and confidence that it could even at least mount a Best Picture campaign. I don't know that it would make it, but they, they seem very high on it, and I think justifiably based on what I've heard from, from people around town about the movie. This critic wasn't mixed on it. I, I think it's a very bad movie. <laughs> 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 But yes, it does it does provoke tears, and I think that is a definitely a big, big one to watch because it it hits the right buttons in the right way that screener weary Academy voters might just be like, ah, that's it, it wins, you know. Yep. It was a big topic at Cannes, right? Like people had had a close eye on that one. Even yeah. More. Well, people thought it was going to win the Palme d'Or. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, David, you mentioned the New York premiere of One Fine Morning, which is part of the New York Film Festival, which kicks off this week um, with the opening night film White Noise, um, which Richard, you, among a select few New Yorkers, already saw uh, yeah. at Venice. Um, but you'll be doing a lot of New York Film Festival stuff, including, I assume, going to the big uh, fancy opening night party for White Noise. Um, what are you looking forward to? You know, another year of seeing at least one film professional throw up because they've had too much Campari at the party. Because <laughs> that's the official liquor sponsor, and that really evokes a vivid I- an image that <laughs> yeah. I wish I didn't have. The first year they did it, it was kind of a, <laughs> a bloodbath. <laughs> it was, but um, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, the uh, New York Film Festival is a great festival for a variety of reasons. For my sort of selfish ones, it's good kind of cleanup for the stuff I missed in Cannes or in Venice or Toronto or wherever. Um, you know, to that end, it's EO and All the Beauty, All the Bloodshed, the Laura Poitras film that won the, the, the top prize at Venice. Um, I'm excited to see, well, I mean, the, the, the world premieres, which are Till and She Said, um, those are two of the big ones. Um, so, yeah, it, the one thing is that I was supposed to go to a press screening this week and I was like, oh, I shouldn't really do that. Because when you're, when the film festival's in your town, you don't have that sort of like, I don't know, mental excuse to be like, it's okay to like be at a movie in the middle of the day, you know? Yeah, you got to do your laundry. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> see your partner. Um, so I got to fight that. But yeah, it's um, it's a really good lineup. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned White Noise, Katie, because it is the opening night movie. That I think this, White Noise's performance at this festival, I think is, not to sound drastic, but sort of make or break for that movie. Um, not that that, not that if it doesn't play that well, it won't have a life. It's going to be on Netflix. It will be very, you know, very available to watch. But I think in terms of its awards chances or whatever, like it, it needs to play very well in New York at New York. And I, I think it might play better than it did in Venice because, um, you know, it is a very New York filmmaker, even though the movie's not set in New York. So, I th- yeah, I, I think that hopefully it will be a good home for that movie, which I think is interesting. Um, it didn't jump out at me at, at Venice, but um, it's certainly big. I mean, this is a, bom- a Noah Baumbach movie with a budget that has been rumored to be over $100 million. Whoa. I don't think I'd heard that rumor before. Um, Netflix did put out these really wonderful teaser posters for it this week, like these fake grocery store sale 
posters with the characters from White Noise on it that made me kind of think they also acknowledge that this is make or break and want to make a big splash in New York. Um, and I think I'm with you, Richard, that it, it feels like it has potential to reverse its narrative here. New York Film Festival is also, I think, a big one for Armageddon Time, uh, the James Gray movie, which um, did play in Toronto, I believe, um, and seemed to do okay there if it's kind of flying under the radar because there were all these big, big, you know, world premieres at that festival this year. Um, so I'm curious to see how that, again, a sort of New York homecoming for the filmmaker. This one is set in New York in the early 80s. So I'll be curious about that. And then, you know, one of the big breakout hits at Cannes, which was in, I think, Critics Week or Director's Fortnight was After Sun, the Charlotte Wells film with Paul Mescal, mm. that was really one of the big, big talking points of Cannes this year, which is rare that a movie from one of those smaller sidebars can break through, you know, all even the the, the Palm d'Or competitors. You know, that's that's a that's a big thing. Um A24 bought the movie, they brought it to Toronto, I believe. Now it's in New York. And I think that that one is so critically beloved. Um, even you know, and 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 it's talked about in a very big way, despite being a pretty small, intimate movie. Um, I don't know. I'll be. I, I kind of have an eye on that movie as something of a sleeper, not quite coda, but could be not a best picture winner, but like not a movie that we should leave out of the conversation. I don't think, especially depending on how it plays at New York. Yeah, and it was a Telluride sneak too, and it, it played really well, and it was talked about a lot. And Barry Jenkins was <laughs> running around town. You know, trying to get the word out for that movie. Was this partly because Paul Mescal and Phoebe Bridgers were there and everyone was just so excited to see, to see them in well, real I, life? I think that's why they were there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. I was yes. imagining their halo effect of celebrity in a tiny mountain town. They had an enormous effect on, on the tenor <laughs> of that festival. Um, yeah, in addition to that, I think you have you know, stronger awards contenders like Tar and Women Talking making their next stop. And um, I feel that, I feel like both of them. You know, their second stops in Tara's case, Telluride, and Women Talking's case, Toronto, really affirmed how strong they were because they played to different kinds of audiences than what they were introduced to and did very well. Um, so this should cement them as really strong overall contenders, um, particularly Sarah Pauly, at least for her screenplay and Kate Blanchett uh, and Best Actress. And we should definitely talk about those two world premieres. I I, I expect, let's say, Daniel Deadweiler to be a, a major point of conversation after Till premieres this weekend. Um, and Till is also, you know, has a lot of pedigree behind it. It's it's a movie that um, MGM is putting a lot into. There, It's an interesting kind of rollout with really focused on the social message of it. And the, 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 I believe the premiere is tied in with educational screenings, which is, um, you know, not typical, <laughs> let's say, uh, yeah. of a New York Film Festival premiere. And um, she said will obviously be land with a kind of earthquake in Hollywood, just given its its subject matter. Yeah, we're almost um, on the five-year anniversary of the Harvey Weinstein reporting coming out. Um, it's a really interesting time for reflection and a really interesting time for that movie coming out. So I'm, I'm intrigued by what the New York Film Festival rollout will be for that until, you know, they kind of sat out the first rush of festival buzz. Um, and as the dust kind of settles on that, here they come and gives us something new to talk about. As we said, we always want to, like, have a fresh topic. So I think it might work re- work out really well for both of them.
Uh, well, if you're not going to New York Film Festival, uh, there's a ton of new movies out in theaters. It's been a really good September and a really good box office September. Uh, Don't worry, darling, out there making money, even if its uh, audience response has been a little muted. Um, but coming this weekend is Bros, which you've heard us talk about a lot. You heard David talking to Billy Eichner um, this week uh, on the interview episode. Um, I, how anxious are we about how Bros performs? Like, I think every, we're all really rooting for it. Does it feel like this kind of crucible that the first gay studio rom-com has to get through? Or is kind of any success a good success for it at this point? Hmm. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I really want it to do well. I, I really liked the movie. Um, I know that I definitely have interacted with people who vehemently disagree with me on that. But um, And the studio has really been like promoting it hard. You know, I think Billy Eichner was on a football broadcast, you know, mm-hmm. like, like they he's went that big everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Which like, good. I mean, you know, he's clearly is proud of the film and I, I think he should be. And, um, you know, I, but I, I don't know. I, I was talking with a friend the, the other day about this and he, and I, and I agree with him, just concerned that it's going to not do well. Um, not, not solely because, oh, well, straight audiences want to see this, you know, but I think a lot of gay audiences or potential audiences are like, no, mm-hmm. like it's to this, it's to that, it's not enough this, it's not enough that. And I get that. I get that discourse. That That's the discourse that surrounds any time there is a queer story even adjacent to the mainstream. Um, but I don't know. I hope that some people can like at least give it a shot. And if they hate it, they hate it. But I, I just think a lot of this movie's profile and identity has already been decided before most people have gotten a chance to see it, which I think is a shame. Yep. Agreed. I'm a little, I'm a little worried for it, but I do think it has a really great crowd pleasing effect. And so the hope is even if it doesn't have a blockbuster opening weekend, that word of mouth and, you know, it has been very well reviewed um, can propel it to, you know, a reasonably long life because it deserves that. And and honestly, my main takeaway when I first watched this movie was having a big comedy like this that's really sharply written and performed is so rare for theaters nowadays, mm-hmm. regardless of the extra baggage or plaudits or accomplishments of this movie. Um, it's just nice to have a movie like that in theaters again. And Billy obviously talked about that uh, on the show this week, but I, I do hope that people go in with that kind of frame of mind as opposed to what is a very fraught, already very fraught conversation around its identity politics and what about it is or is not groundbreaking. Um, because, yeah, that's that's a losing game. Um, but the movie is really fun and funny and I think solid and deserves an audience for that reason alone. It's an interesting case of the movie's marketing sometimes running afoul of the movie itself. I mean, I think the marketing campaign has probably mostly been effective, but um, I think a lot of there's been some some sort of press about like oh it's the first thing to do x it's the first yeah. studio gay rom-com if you don't count love simon i mean there's kind of some asterisk next to it you know um and i think that that has led a lot of people who are curious about the movie but maybe are starting to form a sort of negative opinion about it um it's given them the impression that the movie itself the text of the actual movie is constantly re- referencing its own sort of revolutionary status which i think if anything it's actually even making fun of that if yeah. if, if it's addressing it at all you know I, I don't think that it's in the text of the movie to be sort of bragging about its pioneering status you know there are some jokes about hallmark movies and whatnot which is sort of 
you know, half the joke is that Luke McFarlane, the, the main love interest in the film, it, it has done a lot of those himself. And, you know, they've done a couple of gay Christmas movies or whatever. Like, but those jokes are sort of loving. I don't think that Bros is kind of flexing its muscle and saying, no, no, we're actually the first. We're the, we're the, we're the good version of this. I don't think the movie has that kind of arrogance to it. I can understand why some people might think it does based on some of the way the movie's been talked about ahead of release. But again, I hope people can sort of put that aside and just try to experience, you know, enjoy the movie for what it is, which is, I think, a, a much more humble movie than than maybe the press has suggested. Um, to get Oscar for a second and not to like overpromise what this movie's potential is because it is a, you know, it's a comedy, but there's an original song uh, at the end of this movie that's very mm-hmm. pivotal to the plot. And I would just be really excited if that could get a real campaign. It deserves it. It would be really fun. Yeah. Um, and then back to theaters one more time before we wrap it up. Um, Richard, you and I both took a return trip to a faraway moon called Pandora <laughs> this mm-hmm. past week. Um I'm sure anyone listening to this knows that I'm just a staunch James Cameron defender in all cases. And But I hadn't seen Avatar since 2010, probably like early that year. Um, and Richard, I don't think you had either. You wrote about it um, this week about the experience of going back to it. And I think you had more embraced cynicism about Avatar than I had. It kind of like bought into the notion that it was just this like silly stunt that we all bought into in 2009. Um, yeah. But you've seen the error of your ways, much like the uh, the soldiers on, on Pandora. <laughs> well, some of the soldiers, maybe. <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez, certainly. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote about it and I was, I mean, I probably got some of the timeline wrong, but like, I remember seeing that movie in 2009, right when it came out and being like, wow, that was great. And then somehow like a week or two later, I was like, what a dumb movie. I, you know, like I just <laughs> listened to too much of the noise about the movie or I started doubting my own opinion of the movie, um, which is a shame because and I didn't, I really did not revisit the movie for 13 years. I I think I maybe caught a scene or two on FX on some Sunday afternoon or something, maybe toward the end, the battle scene or whatever. Um, but, you know, n- not a full watch of the movie in 13 years. And um, so I went with my partner and on a Saturday afternoon, we, we went to a fancy candy store nearby and each each got $22 worth of candy. Uh, <laughs> so we really made like a, a sort of event of it. And um, it was obviously in 3D and it was so fun. And the movie is l- a lot less silly than I remember. Um, yes, you, I could absolutely accept any, you know, a lot of criticisms about the way that it sort of makes metaphor or allegory of indigenous people in America or elsewhere in the form of these blue aliens. But I think its political intention is in the right place. I think it's a really earnest big blockbuster, which, you know, the Marvel movies these days are so self-aware and snarky and ironic and meta. And and Avatar is really anything but minus maybe a Sigourney Weaver alien joke. But um, it's just this big, robust thing that uh, is so goofy in a way but also serious and and um those battle scenes are incredible the flight scenes on the i don't know dragons or whatever are so good and yeah so it it really primed the pump for me about like being excited for the the sequel which is exactly what this re-release is supposed to do beyond giving cameron more you know box office bragging rights so yeah and then there was a little scene from the new one tacked on that made the movie look beautiful and so i was i had a great time And, you know, I'm not necessarily endorsing everything about the film, but um, it had really soured in my mind. And it was nice to have a little kind of shake awake and be like, no, this was a big, good James Cameron movie. That that's what it was. It wasn't this kind of lame, um, you know, theme park ride thing that I had sort of remembered it as. 
Yeah, it's a movie that just doesn't really work when it's taken out of context, which is what happens when you remember it or see like a little scene of it or a picture and be like, oh, yeah, that didn't work at all because it envelops you. It kind of builds itself up. You know, it has such this unshakable faith in the world that it's presenting you. And it's like, no, you're going to enjoy this. And then you do because it builds it like bit by bit so that by the time you get to that last hour action sequence, it's kind of given you all the pieces you need to understand how this world works and all this like payoff after payoff. Um, And as you said, Richard, like not in a cynical way, just this like pure entertainment, like, you know, somewhat simplistic belief in wanting to protect the environment. Um, I, I think that you know, maybe Cameron wouldn't make the story the way that he did now. And I'm very curious about The Way of Water and how it maybe gets away from some of that, like, colonialism messaging or um, makes it a little bit more nuanced. Um, I, as I I took my six-year-old and we had a great time. And it was just so fun to share, like, this movie that has meant something to me and 3D, which he had never seen before. Um, I, by the time people hear this, it may not even be in theaters anymore. But um, I'm entirely there with you, Richard. Like, it just made The Way of Water feel like this huge potential as opposed to this question mark kind of lingering in December. Yeah, it made me think it's going to be a huge hit. But did you remember any of the characters' names? (laughs) (laughs) You know, someone quizzed me on remembering Stephen Lang's uh, character's name last week, and I didn't. I didn't remember it, but who Colonel Jujubees? Yeah, Neytiri and Jake Sully. That's all I need to know. I definitely remembered Ranger Rick because of the Sigourney... Weaver line. Oh, right. Oh, what, Ranger, or what, Ranger Rick, you're going to shoot me like my brother and I <laughs> read that line to each other for many years. Sigourney Weaver is so good in that movie. It's, she's so funny and like so she's like so entirely funny. within herself. Um, and like even Giovanni Ribisi, who I think had gotten a bad rap for being way over the top, and he is over, over the top, but he's really funny in it and he's mm-hmm. delivering this like endless exposition and making it work well. I mean, like Billy Zane in Titanic has been redeemed, I think, and Giovanni Ribisi deserves the same. I think I, I would have given Stephen Lang a supporting actor nomination. I think he's so good in it. He, I, he might have been close, honestly. We should go back and it's look. such a good villain role. And and I think Zoe Saldana is really great in it. I know that she had been sort of one of the the, the loci of like of like criticism about, you know, what what are, what are the Navi supposed to be representing or whatever? And there's this accent and there's language and whatever. But like in the sort of vacuum of the movie, she's just like really good and is behind all of this CGI and motion capture and whatever else. Um, and yet she gets a lot of emotion across. And, and um, yeah, it's a really commendable performance for I th- an actor who I would have to imagine is n- not far behind Samuel L. Jackson in terms of the highest grossing movie star ever. Yeah. Right? She's got like three big franchises. So. She's chosen her franchises right. Yeah. Um, and that motion capture holds up. It looks it really looks good. And yeah. there are a lot of movies from much more recent that look terrible. I was really amazed. <laughs> I know it's been restored um, in some way for this re-release. Um, the 3D I could take or leave. I don't know how you felt about it, Richard. I hadn't seen a 3D movie in a while and I was like, eh, it's, 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 it's there. I just need them to invent 3D glasses that fit over real glasses because yeah. that that is the pain. And also they the trailers, you know, I don't normally see trailers because I'm usually going to screenings for work. And um, so I was excited for that, but they kind of were doing them in 3D. So oh. like I saw oh God, the, I remember that. the trailer for Lyle Lyle Crocodile, but it wasn't like good 3D. <laughs> no one's um, prepared for that. And that trailer is surreal enough. It's so um, weird. But to have 
some version of Javier Bardem, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> jumping out at you was not the most pleasant way to start that afternoon. But, um, but yeah, I liked the 3D. I mean, I think you know, it's it's so judiciously. I mean, it's it's it feels like it's not a gimmick. It's just sort of adding to the texture of the movie. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I yeah, I guess they, they did do some technical polishing on it, but I think a lot of it was what it looked like 13 years ago. It was just that ahead of its time in a way. Yeah. I saw the trailer for Wakanda Forever on the big screen for the first time and uh, got a little emotional. So speaking of blockbusters looming uh, in the Oscar race ahead of us, that you know, that's right there, too. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at HWD, or on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. You can also text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7180. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for our reaction to seeing the Lyle Lyle Crocodile trailer in 3D goes to David Canfield. My row was in tears by the end. 